As we begin the message this morning, I want you to think about something. Try to think about how many songs have been written in our culture about the subject of love. If there were some way to do a computer search to come up with every song ever written that contains the word love, I'm sure we would be shocked at the number. How many poems have been written about love? How many books have been written about love? I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that more books are written about love than any other subject, especially when you consider how many books are love stories or a love story is a major part of the book. Love is what people long for, but few experience it. Love is what people long for when they go into marriage. Rarely does someone go into marriage saying that he or she wants to end up disliking his spouse or even hating his spouse, but sadly, that often happens. It happens for a variety of reasons, and one of them is because most people aren't willing to do what is necessary to keep love fervent in their hearts. As I said several weeks ago, When many people stand before the altar during their wedding ceremony and say, I love you, what they are really saying is, I love me and I want you because I think you can make me happy. No wonder so many couples end up not loving each other. As long as we continue to buy into the notion that love is primarily or exclusively a feeling, we will continue to have these train wrecks in relationships. Until we get to the point where we understand and practice love as a choice and as sacrificial actions, we will miss out on what love really is. However, when we do practice love in that manner, in our relationships with one another, we experience some tremendous benefits. The Holy Spirit mentions some of those in our text for today. So please turn with me in your Bible over near the end of the New Testament to the little letter titled 1 John. And our text this morning is verses 16 through 24. So I invite you to follow along with me as I read from 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 
Here in this section of Scripture that we just read, the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions three wonderful benefits of a good love life. The fact that John lists these benefits illustrates a very important point for us to understand, and it is this. When God tells us something, He tells us for our own good. Beloved, get that truth embedded deeply into your heart and into your soul. When God tells us something, He does so for our own good. So many people, even Christians, have a completely wrong view of God because they think that God has given us His Word to restrict us and to deprive us. They believe that God is a cosmic killjoy even if they would never admit it or state it. They actually believe that God does not want what is best for us. Please hear me. Please hear me when I say this. That is exactly what Satan wants you to believe. That is exactly what he wants you to believe. Satan wants you to believe that God is holding out on you. Satan wants you to believe that God isn't good. This is the very approach that Satan took with Adam and Eve in the garden. He planted doubts in their minds about the trustworthiness of God's word. And he planted doubts in their minds about the goodness of God. And he has used those same two tactics ever since to cause immense damage in people's lives. Look for this in your own life. Even right now, this very moment, think about this in your own life. Look at how Satan tries to get you to doubt the trustworthiness of what God has said and how he tries to get you to believe that God is trying to deprive you of things that would make you happy. Maybe you're even believing those lies today. Those very lies. That's what they are. They are lies. God's word can be trusted and God is good. One of the reasons why God says what he says is for our own good. It's for our own benefit. This passage is an illustration of that truth. Now we all know that the Bible repeatedly tells us to love. We are told to love our spouses. We are told to love our enemies, even if that happens to be a spouse, tragically. We are told to love one another. We are told to love the lost. When we see these repeated commands of God to love, it would be easy to assume that God tells us to do those things because He wants to make life burdensome for us in having to carry out the responsibilities of love. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. God does exhort us to love many times. And one of the reasons why is because that is good for us. Surely you can understand this. Who hasn't seen a person who is miserable because he or she is so self-absorbed and so self-centered? Selfless love is not only right, it is good for us. This passage is an illustration of that reality because not only are we exhorted to love in this text, we are also given some of the benefits of living a life of love. That's why I titled the message, Benefits of a Good Love Life. There are many that could be listed, but John specifically gives three in this text. Here they are. Number one, 
assurance of salvation. Number two, answered prayer. And number three, assurance of the Lord's presence. Now what is more important than those things? What possibly could be more important than those things? What is more important than knowing you are saved, you are right with God, and you are headed to heaven? What is more important than knowing the Lord hears and answers your prayers? What is more important than being assured that the Lord is with you in whatever you go through in life? Those are the three benefits that John mentions for those who love as God exhorts us to love. So with that in mind, let's look at this text together to see how John unfolds it for us. Verse 16, he says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You may remember from last week's message that John has been talking about love in the previous paragraph. So it is a natural progression for him to begin describing what love is or what love looks like in practical, everyday actions. That's what he does here in this verse. He wants to make sure that we understand that love isn't ethereal. Love isn't just a feeling. Love is not just emotion. Love is action. Love was demonstrated for us when the Lord Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Jesus Himself said of His death, Greater love has no one than this. That was the ultimate display and definition of love. Since that is the pattern, John adds the next thought here in verse 16. He says, And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't merely mean that we ought to be willing to die for one another. That's true. But that's not all that is meant. In fact, in one sense, you could make the case that it is easier to die for someone else than it is to live for someone else. What I mean is, loving one another doesn't only mean that we are willing to die for one another. It also means that we must be willing to live for one another. To die for the benefit of our Christian brothers and sisters would involve a one-time act. But loving one another sacrificially throughout life involves an ongoing sacrifice, an unending sacrifice. That's why John gives the following application in verse 17. He says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see, loving one another as Jesus loved us doesn't only mean that we are willing to die for one another. Now, in rare situations, that might be the case, but those would indeed be rare. But it it primarily means that we are willing to help one another and give to one another and sacrifice for one another in life. John doesn't let us hide behind the claim that we love each other so much that we would be willing to die for one another. He doesn't let us hide behind that because he knows that probably most of us, maybe not any of us, would ever face such a scenario. So it's as as, as if he says, okay, 
If you claim that you really love your brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's see how it fleshes out in practical ways in everyday life. That's a lot harder for us. But that's where the rubber meets the road. It's easy for us to say, oh, I would die for my Christian friend, my Christian brother or sister. If it came to that, I would die for that person. It's easy to say that because most of us know we will never face that scenario. So true love is not limited to supreme sacrifices, but shows up in lesser ones. That's the point. So when we want to evaluate our lives to see if we love one another as we ought, don't look for the major instances of supreme or extreme sacrifice. Look for practical, everyday expressions of love that help others and address the needs of those around us. Do you help others? Do you sacrifice for others? If not, don't claim that the love of God abides in you. John is not about to let us off the hook by hiding behind vague generalities and unsubstantiated claims. He is nailing us to the wall with specifics. So he drives the point home even further. Verse 18, notice, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed, in action, and in truth. We have an expression in our culture, and it is this. Put your money where your mouth is. In other words, talk is cheap. Talk is easy. Words are easy. What really counts is our actions. What really matters is our actions. That's what John is saying here. He is not suggesting that it is wrong for us to express our love and affirm our love verbally. Nothing wrong with that. That is good. That is appropriate. What is not acceptable is when we say it, but don't show it. That's what he's addressing. This reminds me of James 2, 15 and 16, which says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? That's the same point that John is making. We should not claim to love our brothers and sisters in Christ if it isn't demonstrated in our actions. But if we really do live a life of love toward one another, then there are benefits in our own lives. Be careful here. It's not that we love for our own selfish purposes. That's not our goal. That's not our motive to love for our own selfish purposes. We love because it is right. We love because this is what God asks of us. This is what God requires of us. However, when we do what God says, there is often a benefit for us personally. John mentions one in the next verse. He says in verse 13, And by this, that is loving one another, by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Living a life of love toward the people of God is one of the assurances that we truly belong to God. John already mentioned this up in verse 14. He says in verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love his brother abides in death. When we see that we love the people of God, when we see that we love the body of Christ, when we see that we love the family of God with all its faults and flaws, even those we've never met, that is an indication of God's saving grace in our lives. That is the case because unbelievers don't naturally love the people of God. Now, there are unbelievers who love a Christian or two in their lives, but this verse is talking about loving all the family of God. That is not natural. That is something accomplished in our lives at salvation, which is why John can make this statement here in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The resident Holy Spirit gives us a love for God and a love for the people of God that is not natural, and it certainly is not from ourselves. That's what gives us confidence that we have been born of God and that we have passed from death into life. This non-natural love for the people of God is a sign of the saving grace of God in our lives. That's what John is describing here in verse 19. Assurance of salvation is one of the benefits of a good love life toward the people of God. And let me tell you, assurance is a priceless commodity. Only the Lord himself knows how many of his people have been tormented, plagued, down through the ages, by doubt in their hearts concerning their spiritual standing with the Lord. I would probably have to say as a pastor that, that this, this issue ranks right in the top three of issues that people want to talk with me about. This whole issue of assurance of salvation, doubts being plagued by that. It's a very common experience, which is why John adds the next verse. He says in verse 20, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. It is not at all uncommon for the people of God to be plagued by doubts and insecurities and uncertainties about their salvation. John was a pastor. He had worked with many people. He was an elderly man when he wrote this letter. He had been working with people for decades. He knew how common this was. Our hearts often condemn us, but our hearts are not the final judge, he's saying. God is. He is a higher authority than our hearts. And he says that we can find assurance of salvation when we see his grace in our lives as evidenced by our love for his people because that is not something that's natural. So he's basically saying, listen, if you see that in your life, if you see this non-natural, non-self-produced love for the people of God, you know that's evidence of the grace of God in your life. God's assessment should win out over the condemnation of our hearts. And when we allow God's assessment to win out by giving us assurance of salvation in our hearts, that gives us great confidence in our standing with God. So John says in verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. This is a precious, priceless experience. 
When we allow God's assessment to win out by giving us assurance of salvation in our hearts, that is a precious condition indeed. When we choose to hear and believe what God has said about the certainty of our salvation as indicated by our love for His people, we have confidence toward God. You see, beloved, it comes down to who or what we are going to believe. Are we going to believe our hearts when they condemn us? Or are we going to believe what God has said regarding love for His people being a sign of true salvation? That's the choice. If we choose to believe God and experience the assurance that comes with that faith, our doubts can be conquered so that our hearts don't condemn us. That's one of the benefits of living a life of love toward the people of God. Then John adds a second. Verse 22. He says, and, here's an additional benefit, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. This is a second benefit of obeying the commands of God to love His people. And it is this. We know that the Lord is hearing and answering our prayers. When John refers to his commandments here in this verse, and he mentions doing those things that are pleasing in his sight, it is clear from the context that he is talking about the commandments to love the people of God, and that is what is pleasing in God's sight. So he basically says this, when we live that way, when we live a life of love toward God's people, a life of sacrificial love toward God's people, God is pleased to answer our prayers. This isn't the only place in Scripture where we are told that how we relate to other people affects God's reception of our prayers. Maybe this is something you've not thought very much about. 1 Peter 3, 7, for example, says, that the way we husbands, I'm talking about we men here in the, in the room who are husbands, the way we relate to our wives has an effect on our prayers being answered. It says, 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, likewise dwell with them, with your wife, with, an, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now listen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Our prayers are hindered when we don't treat people like God wants us to treat people. I mean, think about it. Think about the contradiction it is when we go to the Lord in prayer and we say something like this, Lord, I bring my need before you and I ask that you would grant me grace. So we come before the Lord with that kind of prayer, but at the same time, we are being ungracious or unloving toward other believers or even our spouse. Do you think the Lord is going to be inclined to answer our prayers? The obvious answer is no. We cannot, listen to this, we cannot disconnect our horizontal relationships from our vertical relationship. We cannot disconnect the two. We can't put them in separate categories. We have to see the connection. If we are not behaving properly in our human relationships by showing love, then we shouldn't expect the Lord to hear our prayers. Now this ought to be obvious. 
But there are Christians who just don't make the connection. They just don't see it for whatever reason. They are unkind or unthoughtful or mean or rude or insensitive or inconsiderate of others around them, and yet they wonder why their prayers don't seem to be answered. Maybe it comes right back to John's statement here. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And again, I remind you, this is not just general commandments here. In the context, the commandments to love his people, the commandments to love, that's what is pleasing in his sight. When John says, and whatever we ask, it's obviously important to keep in mind other passages of Scripture that give us other guidelines about prayer. For example, we are to pray according to his will and ask as Jesus did when he said, Nevertheless, remember in the garden, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When we pray according to the Lord's will, and when we are loving others as God commands, we can have confidence that the Lord is pleased to answer our prayers. That is a second benefit of obeying the commands of God to love His people. So John reiterates that command, and he prefaces it with the foundational command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is fascinating. Notice what he does here in verse 23. It almost seems out of place the way that he brings this in there. He says, and this is his commandment. Oh, he's been talking about love. That's obvious. So we would expect him to say, this is his commandment to love. But first he says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. This is a very interesting verse in the way John adds another element to what he has been discussing. He has been talking about the commandment of God to love. But here he adds the prior commandment to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Why does John bring that in at this point? I mean, it's, it's obvious why he would say that, because that's the most foundational issue in life, to believe on Jesus Christ. So it's not surprising to hear John say it. Why does he say it here? It almost seems to break up his flow, break up his argument. What's the point in bringing that into the discussion? I believe the answer is this. John wants us to see how important and how foundational it is that we love one another in the family of God. It is so foundational and so important that it is basically on the same plane or same level as God's command that we believe in His Son. That's why John brings it in at this point. The command to love one another is not some optional command that is weighed down the list of things that are important to God. John places it right up here with the command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how essential the command to love really is. You could say it this way. It is joined at the hip. It is joined at the hip with the command to believe in Jesus. And that's why John words this the way he does. He says here in this verse, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. In other words, these are two sides of the same coin, on the same plane, equally important. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave commandment. And then with that, John closes 
by mentioning a third benefit of living a life of love. Not only assurance of salvation, not only assurance of answered prayer, but verse 24, he says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. A third benefit of obeying the Lord's commandments to love is the assurance of the Lord's presence with us. We can have confidence that the Lord is with us in whatever we go through in life. And again, beloved, I would tell you that this kind of reality, this kind of assurance is priceless. Knowing that the Lord is with us in whatever we go through in life, whatever we walk through in life, But notice what John says here in this verse. The child of God who keeps the Lord's commandments not only abides in Christ, Christ abides in him. Do you see that? We abide in Christ when when we keep his commandments, but he also abides in us. He says here, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And if you didn't have something capitalized there, it'd be really confusing. But if it's capitalized, it makes it clear. So he who keeps his commandments abides in him, capital H, that is in the Lord. And he, the Lord, in him, that is in the one who keeps the commandments. We abide in Christ when, he keep, when we keep his commandments, but he also abides in us. He abides in us personally. But he also abides in us through his blessed Holy Spirit, which is why John adds the last part of the the verse. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Spirit of God is sent to indwell us at salvation. The Spirit of God is sent to abide with us at the moment of salvation. It is a permanent indwelling. According to Romans 8, 9, it is impossible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That is, if anyone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's not a Christian. Impossible to be a Christian without the Spirit. During the transition time of the book of Acts, there were occasions when people became Christians, but did not receive the Holy Spirit immediately. This was done to keep the church from splitting off into different groups such as a Jewish church in Jerusalem and the Gentile church out on the seacoast and Samaritan church up in Samaria, etc. So there were times when the Lord would wait to give the Holy Spirit until the apostles were present to make sure to keep the church unified under the leadership of the apostles. However, once that transition period was completed, and it has been completed, There is no such thing as a Christian who does not possess the Holy Spirit. He indwells all true believers permanently. So how does that fit with what John says here? Look at the verse again. John seems to imply that if we don't keep the Lord's commandments to love, then we're going to be forsaken by the Lord and be forsaken by the Holy Spirit. Is that what John is saying? Not at all. It's not that the Holy Spirit forsakes us or leaves us when we don't love others. But watch this. We do quench His presence in our lives. We do quench His ministry in our lives. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. The fact that Paul 
gives us that command indicates that that's something that we have the potential to do. We have the potential to quench the Spirit of God, His presence in our lives. Not only that, Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Again, the very fact that that command is given to us implies that is something we have the potential to do. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. There is nothing in the New Testament that says, don't do this or you will send the Holy Spirit away. By sinning, he will go away. No, but we are told, don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. So the clear implication of those, ver- of those verses is that it is possible for us to do that. We can't send him away, but we can quench him. We can't send him away, but we can grieve him. And that results in a lack of assurance or a lack of confidence, even if it's not a lack of his actual presence with us. So here's the point John is making here in verse 24. If we want to have the confidence, if we want to have the assurance that the Lord's presence is with us, that we're not thwarting him in any way, quenching him or grieving him, we need to make sure that we don't quench or grieve the Holy Spirit of God by refusing to keep the Lord's commandments to love. This is the third of the three benefits John mentions in this text that come from living a life of love. They are assurance of salvation, assurance of answered prayer, assurance of the Lord's presence. And again, I ask you, beloved, stop and think about what really is more important than those things. What possibly could be more important than those things? What is more important than knowing with absolute certainty you are saved, you are a child of God, you are headed to heaven? What is more important than knowing that the Lord hears and answers your prayers, that the ceiling above you is not concrete or steel and your prayers bounce back? What is more important than being assured that the Lord is with you in whatever you go through in life? Beloved, God is good. Don't ever doubt that. Don't ever believe Satan's lies. God is good, and when he gives us commandments, it is often for our own good. Now it's not, again I emphasize, it's not that we love for our own selfish purposes. Well, I'll love so I'll get all these benefits. No, that's not our goal. That's not our motive. We love because it is right. We love because it's what God requires of us. We love because this is what God commands of us. However, when we do what God says, there are often benefits for us personally. And the three the Holy Spirit mentions here in this text are three of the most precious and most priceless. So, look at your life. Don't don't close your Bible and close your mind. Look at your life. Do you live a life of love toward other people? Or, if you want the answer to that question, maybe answer it by looking at these three benefits. Do you have absolute assurance, confidence in your heart that you are forgiven, saved, and a child of God? If not, it's possible that this is the reason why. There could be other reasons, but it's possible that this is the reason why. Do you have confidence that the Lord is pleased to answer your prayers? If you have doubts about that, maybe it's important that you look at your love life. How do you treat other people? If you don't treat other people properly, no wonder your prayers aren't heard. Do you have absolute confidence and assurance the Lord is with you in whatever you go through in life? Again, if you can't say yes, 
Then look at your love life. How do you love other people? We dare not. We dare not try to disconnect our vertical relationship from our horizontal relationships because the Lord doesn't disconnect them as we see in this passage. Let's bow our heads together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes just for a few minutes here of reflection and evaluation, I encourage you, urge you to think about what you have seen here in God's Word and bring it to your own life to see how your life matches up to what you've heard. One thing is very important to understand, and that is you don't determine you are going to love and think that somehow that will earn you salvation. That's not at all what John is saying here. He is not saying, well, if, if I just try, if you will just try to love God's people, then you will be granted the reward of salvation. No, absolutely not. Salvation is a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is why John says this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. That's the foundation. So do you really believe in Jesus Christ? Not mental assent, not intellectual assent. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Believe in him in the sense of commitment to him, surrender to him. Do you know him personally? And if you do, it is abundantly clear throughout Scripture that he asks those of us who belong to him to love others who belong to him, to love his people, to love his children, to love his followers with all the faults and flaws that we have. We're to love one another. But not only does he ask us, require us to love one another, here in this passage, he gives us benefits. Here are the benefits if we'll live a life of love. So take what you've heard this morning, what you've seen this morning, grapple with it personally in your own life. And however the Lord has spoken to your heart, however the Lord has tapped on your shoulder, or however the Lord has indicated something that needs to be addressed in your life, make sure you don't ignore that. Don't close it out. Don't just walk away. Father, thank you that you are good. You really are good. Satan lies to us that you are not. He tells us that you don't want what is best for us, that you're holding out on us, that you're trying to deprive us. But those are blatant lies. You are good. You want what is best for us. That is why you have so graciously given us your word to mark out the path of life that we should live and how, how we should live to please you. That is why you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to pay for our sins so that we could know and experience forgiveness and have eternal life through knowing Him and knowing you. You are good. Your Word is trustworthy. When it says what we should do, it is right. It is not only right, it is good for us. And may we have those truths settled deep in our hearts and souls to combat the repeated lies of Satan to try to convince us otherwise. And Father, as we've considered this text this morning on the benefits of a good love life, it's another reminder to us of how good you are. You command us to love, but then you tell us that if we'll just do what you say, there are amazing benefits. And the ones that you've mentioned in this text are 
are so remarkable. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of answered prayer. Assurance of your presence with us. Those commodities in life mean more than anything we could possibly possess. And so we pray that we would be people who love. That we would remember we are called to love one another as a testimony to people around us who do not know the Savior. That they would see our love for one another and know, Father, that you sent the Son. We remember that this was Jesus' prayer in John 17. And we want to... We want to Do our part in answering that prayer by loving one another. Grant us the grace to do so as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.